this uh, photo, which is a bit blurry, but it, um, it records one of the most enjoyable nights of my life. It was um, at university, and we had just won uh, the Intercollegiate Rugby Cup. Now, I'm not much of a sportsman, um, but that was our chance to play in the university stadium at Ifley Road against our bitter rivals, St. Peter's, and we won. And I can tell you, that night we had some celebration. Now, of course, not all the activities of a celebrating rugby team are entirely wholesome, but the one thing I do remember very fondly was the singing. It started as somebody got hold of a guitar from somewhere and brought it into the showers. Um, And it it carried on from there. And we always used to sing in the clubhouse after our matches, all the classics, Bread of Heaven, Flower of Scotland, Swing Low, Running Bear. But that night, after that victory, we sang with particular joy. Human beings sing in triumph. And the greater the triumph, the greater the songs. This past fortnight in the UK, we've been remembering, haven't we, the end of the Second World War. And I guess for us, looking back, there is a sense of solemnity about that. But at the time, there would have been a great outpouring of joy and celebration as crowds of thousands got together in the middle of the city centers. These were people who had suffered air raids and had lived through rationing and the fear of invasion. But now all of that was over. And so even though it wasn't probably necessarily many of them who had been doing the fighting, this was their victory. And so they got together and they sang. And you can imagine, expect, the, what a feeling that must have been with crowds of people in George Square or Trafalgar Square singing the national anthem with such a sense of solidarity and victory. Send him victorious, happy and glorious. The greater the victory, the greater the victory songs. Well, what we have in Psalm 118 is one of the Bible's greatest victory songs. You'll see on the service sheet that headline that I would put over the whole of the psalm, which is to say that this is the victory song of God's triumphant king. As we look through it, that's what we will find, that God's chosen one, his king, was hard-pressed by enemies, but in his love, God brought him through to victory. And so now he sings in thanks and praise. This is the victory song of God's triumphant king. And it's not just the song of one man. If you look down at the psalm, you can see that the main bit of it, verses 5 to 21, is spoken from a personal perspective. Out of my distress, I called. But then as the psalm goes on, we hear other voices, other people, all God's people, joining in the celebration. As the people of the king share in his victory, and so they also share in his song. Now, for us reading this, if we're here trusting the Lord Jesus, if we're Christian people here tonight, then this, this psalm is meant to draw us into that song, into that joy and celebration, so that by the end of it, we are singing too. Because as we'll see, Jesus is the ultimate king who won the ultimate victory. And so this is not just a song that some other people sang. This is our song, if we're Christians here tonight. This is the victory song of God's triumphant king in which his people share. Now, for some of you here this evening, perhaps if you're not so, um, so experienced or clear about um, Christian things, this may sound like a surprising idea because, well, at best, Christianity seems to offer pretty 
mild and uh, sugar-free pleasures. You know, it can hardly be compared to a rowdy rugby team singing of their victories. I mean, trying to live a good life, having to go to church on a Sunday, these are hardly the things to make us stand up and sing our hearts out in celebration. Well, what we'll see is that those things are not at the heart of Christianity. At the heart of Christianity is the victory that Jesus Christ has won over sin and over mortality and death on behalf of his people. That victory in which his people share brings a joy into the heart of the Christian, a joy that must sometimes overflow. And I want to say this evening, and maybe you can take this as a challenge, I hope it isn't too challenging, that if you, if you don't yet see what's worth singing about in Christianity, then I, I think probably you don't yet understand the heart of it. For others of us, though, who are here, that won't be the problem. We, we do understand the reasons in Christianity for singing and for joy, but we just don't feel it. Other people seem to have that joy, 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 joy down in their hearts, but we don't. And the fact that others do only makes us feel worse because what's gone wrong with me? Well, partly it's a function of how we're all different, our personalities. And becoming a Christian doesn't override those differences. Some of us are effusive, wear our hearts on our sleeves, but we're not all like that and we shouldn't expect to be. But there is a joy at the center of the gospel. And if we're not feeling that, and we haven't been feeling that for a while, then I hope this psalm will really help us because it is the victory song of God's triumphant king in which his people share. Now, what we're going to do is have a look through the psalm. Um, I'm going to try and show you why I think that this is what it's saying. It's quite long, isn't it? And I don't know about you, but it took me a good few reads to sort of see what was going on. So we'll see how it all fits together, and then we'll, we'll think about some practical applications. So looking down at it, you've got verses 1 to 4 at the beginning, which are calling for all of God's people to join in the song of victory. Let Israel say, let the priests, that's who the Aaronites are, let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. That, that sets the tone. It's like I was saying about it's a psalm that draws us in so that by the end we're singing along. But then uh, verse 5 through to verse 21, we get into the meat of it as this single figure speaks of his experience. He says that he was in big trouble in distress. He was surrounded by enemies, those who hate him. They swarmed around him like, like a, a swarm of bees, verse 12. Or in the next verse, he says, it's like being in the thorny brush of a Middle Eastern countryside and there's a fire all around you, nowhere to go. He's surrounded, nowhere to turn. He was hard pressed, verse 13. He was falling. Now, these, these are not the troubles of everyday life. The, 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 um, I think uh, it's clear this is a military leader, a ruler, a king speaking really up against it in the heat of battle. But this figure cries out to the Lord, and in his love, the Lord acts and helps and saves him. All the nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I um, um, cut them off. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. And then if you look at verse 19, from then you have this victorious royal figure processing back into Jerusalem, back into the capital city. He returns in triumph saying, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. Probably this procession would have gone all the way through the city up to the gates of the temple 
where the king would offer sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. We can imagine that, can't we? And then it's at that point that all the other people begin to join in with the singing. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We have that as a children's song, don't we? Let us rejoice and be... But, um, but it's not just any day it's talking about. God's people are singing in this special day of victory. Because even if it wasn't them that had done the fighting, they very much share in the king's victory, don't they? If the king had been defeated or killed, then the whole people would have been overrun. And they'd now be serving the Philistines or whoever else it might have been. They, they share in his victory. And so they join in his song. They share his sense of thankfulness and celebration. What a relief. What a rescue. The Lord is God. And he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. And then the psalm finishes in the last couple of verses with a return to the personal perspective. Either this is the king again, speaking from that uh, singular, singular voice, or else I think it could be that the, the personal response of any Israelite as they turn from the joyful crowd and perhaps in their hearts in a quiet moment, they say a private word of thanks. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God and I will extol you. Well, that's, that's Psalm 118. I think that's what it is. It's the victory song of God's triumphant king in which his people share. And by the end of it, you can picture the scene. All God's people in Jerusalem are singing along. But what about us? I mean, it's not really our world, is it? A king re-entering Jerusalem in military triumph. It's not really our world. Well, this psalm, like a lot of the psalms, like a lot in the Old Testament, it it points forward beyond itself, beyond its original historical setting to the Lord Jesus, the ultimate king who won the ultimate victory. He, at the end of the day, was the one who was promised and who in his life and death and resurrection and ascension fully, finally fulfills the hopes, the pictures that we have in psalms like this. So think about it from his perspective. It's true, isn't it? In his life, and uh, particularly in his death, Jesus was surrounded by enemies. He was utterly rejected. Like that stone in the image of verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected. It's a funny shape. It doesn't look any good. They've rejected it. They don't want to know. It's in the skip. Just get rid of it. That's how Jesus was treated. But God raised him up in triumph over all his enemies. The grave couldn't hold him. As on the third day he rose again, sin had been paid for, evil had his grip over people broken, and God made Christ to be the cornerstone, not just there on his own, but the cornerstone, the foundation of a wonderful new building project that God is building, his global church. In the psalm, if you look at verses 17 and 18, they really only apply in a very limited sense um, to the original speaker or singer of the psalm. He's saying, I didn't die, I I survived, you couldn't get me, I I will live. But even the greatest of Israel's kings all died in the end, whereas Jesus, in his resurrection, triumphed eternally over death. And so we think of verses 19 and 20, 
It wasn't just into Jerusalem or the temple that Jesus processed like a conquering hero. In his ascension, he walked into heaven itself, of which those things are just a copy, and he sat down in triumph. I wonder if you would have uh, supposed that Psalm 118 is the chapter in the Old Testament from which the New Testament quotes the most. It's true. More than any other chapter in the whole Old Testament, the New Testament writers quote from this psalm. I guess Jesus and his apostles, they saw in this a very clear picture of the Messiah and his victory. They have the famous verses, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Or from Palm Sunday, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And all of this, all of this is why this is our song, if we're Christians. Because Jesus has won an eternal victory. And his people, if you're trusting in him tonight, we share in it. He faced on our behalf the enemies that would keep on defeating us of sin and death. He set us free. We're forgiven. He was surrounded, but God brought him through it. And so we share in his victory. And we can sing glad songs of celebration. Because Jesus, our hero, has triumphed. And saved us. There are other kinds of songs in the Psalms. There are laments and songs of mourning, because sometimes that's what life is like, and the Bible is realistic about that. But this song is a song of full fat celebration. This is the victory song of God's triumphant King, in which his people share. In a few moments, we're going to sing. Words of a great old hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. What a wonderful song to join in together off the back of this psalm, the triumphs of his grace. As we think of what Jesus bravely faced for us, the triumph of his resurrection, and how we share in that, an everlasting victory. If you're a Christian, when the time comes, sing out. And not just when we're here in church, either. This psalm is asking us, gently, about the place of prayer in our lives more generally. Are we people of praise? As the psalm says, I can't remember which verse it is, glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. What about your tent on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday morning? Are we people of praise? It's not about saying a few words or painting on a fake and pious smile in the morning. It's about thinking of what Christ has done for us and of what we share in, in him. As we feel that sense of thankfulness, that the solid ground beneath our feet, that is that victory won. Our lives have many ups and downs, don't they? Many losses as well as gains. But underneath it all, we can see, we can feel this eternal victory. Every day, every day, the Christian has reasons to be thankful and joyful. So really practically, as uh, all of us head off into the coming week, I guess we'll be in different places. Some of you still on holiday, some of you back at work. As we head off, how are we going to do it? Well, I think if you manage to pray each day, um, it's very important as we pray to say sorry for things or to ask for God's help with things. But it's also very important, and I think it's easy to forget, isn't it, to praise God for all that he has done for us in Jesus. Praise him in the morning. 
And try to let that air of thankfulness hang around you as you go about the rest of the day. Well, thinking about another practical implication of, of this, often when we, we try to speak to others, folks around us who don't yet know the Lord Jesus about him, about the gospel, we can kind of be a bit apologetic about that and say, well, I'm so sorry to inconvenience you, but um, you know, I want to speak about the best news in the world, but you probably wouldn't be interested. I'm so sorry for bothering you with the best news in the world. But it's the best news in the world. That God in his steadfast love was willing to have us back. That we could be friends with him. You, you may uh, know the, the proverb about never to trust a skinny chef. Now, of course, that, that isn't literally true. Um, there are lots of people here uh, who are slim and who also make, make very nice food. But, but you see the point of the proverb. That if we ourselves are not feasting on the gospel and the joy in the gospel, then how will others believe us when we tell them it really is the best news in the world? If the gospel is not something that brings us joy and makes us visibly celebrate and gives us a steadiness in life, how can we tell them that it really is good news worth giving up your life for? Only a life of praise like this psalm is leading us into will draw others in in evangelism. That's where this psalm is leading us. It's leading us into being people of praise. It's the victory song of God's triumphant king in which his people share. However, as we move towards a close, what about when we don't feel like singing? What about the times when we read a psalm like this and it leaves us cold? The times when we think about the cross and resurrection of Jesus and just find that we're not swept up into praising him. All Christians will know how that feels from time to time. Partly it's a matter of circumstance or a matter of our mental state. Partly, as I said before, it's our personality. Some of us are Eeyores more than uh, piglets and all the other personality types that there are. Piggers. But all Christians will know at some, in some way or other this feeling of just not not feeling the joy of our salvation. Well, in those times, and if, if that's how you're feeling here tonight, if you've been feeling like that for, for a while, I think there are, there are a few things. Let me pull out four things, four ways in which this psalm might help us. First of all, try to think of Jesus. Try to think of Jesus as your triumphant hero. Our circumstances, our mood, our enjoyment of church, our assessment of our own spiritual performance, all of these things go up and down, and they can take us with them up and down. Whereas if we can stay focused on Christ and on the victory that he has won, it's fixed, it's a fact, it's done, he's won it. If we can focus on him as our triumphant hero who has finally won the victory and defeated sin and death, then that is something that isn't going to change and something that won't go up and down. It's been, it's been really helpfully said that um, all human religion boils down to two letters, D-O. It's all about what we do to get right with God or to please him, and we feel good about what we do. But with Christianity, with Jesus, it's not about D-O, it's D-O-N-E, because it's about what he has already done 
for us in laying down his life. And the fact of his victory is done. Provides solid ground beneath our feet. It's a fact. And feelings follow facts. Not always as quickly as we would like them to. But in the end, they do. Feelings follow facts. And so if we can keep on seeing Jesus as our triumphant hero, eventually those feelings of joy and thankfulness will catch up. One old minister used to quote the line of poetry, For every look within, take 50 looks at him. It's bad poetry, but it's good wisdom. Try to stay focused on Jesus as your triumphant hero. Second, try to remember that it's God's love that gives us this victory. Just look at how the psalm begins and ends. We praise the Lord because of his steadfast love, which endures forever. The victory we celebrate and the hope that this gives us, it comes from the love that God has for his people. God loves us with an everlasting, steadfast love. We're not lovely people. We don't merit his love, but he loves us with a steadfast love. And again, that is a a fact. It's a fact that he's shown in the coming and the dying and the rising of Jesus. We won't always feel that love, but it's there nonetheless. And feelings eventually follow facts. If you're feeling bored of God, bored with him tonight, bored of being a Christian, looking elsewhere, Think of how much he has loved you in choosing you to be his own, in laying all your sin on Jesus, in giving you his Holy Spirit now, in preparing for you a place in heaven. The victory that you have in Christ, think of how much he has loved you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Third, try to remember what you've been saved from. There's a real sense as we read this psalm of we were in big trouble. If you look down as the figure of the king speaks in verses 5 to 13, that's true, isn't it? There's a real sense of we were in big trouble. We were hard pressed. We, we were nearly done for. And sometimes as Christians, because it's that sense, isn't it, that, that fuels the thankfulness when the Lord stepped in and rescued And it's easy, isn't it? I find we can lose that sense of, I was nearly done for. I was was headed for hell. We get used, don't we? We get used to, to the idea that we've been forgiven instead of condemned. The idea that I'll be with God forever in heaven instead of sent away from him forever. But there's nothing automatic about any of that. Without his love, I was headed for hell. And I need to remember, we need to remember what we've been saved from. And that is what will fuel that sense of joy and thankfulness and maintain it, like we see in the psalm. One of my big sisters used to live in uh, Tajikistan. And um, I went to visit her one of the summers, and I had to learn some local manners so I didn't put my foot in it while I was there. And um, some of the local manners are about the eating of bread. You kind of sit around a tablecloth, and there's 
there's bread in the middle, and there's certain things that you don't do. There's two things you don't do. You don't finish the bread. That's really bad form. You don't take the last piece. You, you, you don't finish the bread. And this was a bit, I found it a bit odd. You don't put the bread upside down. So the, it's like a, well, the bread has, has a certain shape. It has a bottom side and a top side. You don't put the bread upside down. And I found out later on the reason for this. It's about respecting the bread and respecting the food because the people there, they remember when there wasn't enough food when there wasn't enough bread, not that long ago, there was a civil war and they faced the dreadful position of not having enough food. And they are so thankful that those days are past. And they want to stay thankful that those days are past. And so they have these little ways of just reminding themselves to respect the bread and be thankful that we're not there anymore. And I guess to teach their children to be thankful that we're not there anymore. Well, a psalm like this, I think, for Christians is reminding us of the plight, the misery, the danger that we faced. And joy will come as we find ways of remembering how close we came to being ruined for eternity. How do we do that in practice? Well, the Bible will remind us often enough if we will read it. But also, there are other things that we might do. For example, when someone loosely uses the word hell to say, oh, that exam was hell, or the traffic on the way home was just hell. I hope, I hope as a Christian, I hope if you're a Christian, you wouldn't use the word like that. And it's common enough though, isn't it? And when, when somebody does around you, just to take a, a moment inwardly, just to pause and reflect on the scale of a word like that, we need to try to remember what we've been saved from if we would maintain and feel the joy that we find in this psalm. And then finally, the fourth thing, if we're not feeling the joy, if we're not feeling like singing, then try to stir one another up. The psalm is full of that kind of language, isn't it? It's that sense of the people of God praising him all together. So as we sing in services, you have that sense of praising him together. As we speak afterwards, and as we talk in the week about the normal things of life, making it clear to one another that we are conscious of the goodness of God and of his love and of the victory that we have in Christ that is under our feet as solid ground, making it clear in little things we say to each other so as to remind one another and stir one another up to praise. And that way, when I've forgotten, when I'm feeling weighed down, you can help me out. And when you've forgotten, I can help you out. And together, as God's people, we will stir up one another. As, it, as the psalm begins, let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the joy that we can find in the gospel. We thank you for your great love that you didn't leave us in our plight, but sent Jesus who on our behalf faced the enemies that we could never defeat. Father, we praise you that we share in his victory. And we pray that more and more in our lives and in our services and in every way, we would join in this joyful victory song. Lord, we pray that when the times come when we don't feel the joy of our salvation, that we wouldn't be rocked by that, but that in your good timing, 
you would help us to see again Jesus, our triumphant hero, to see and to feel something of his worth and to join in again, however faintly, this wonderful victory song. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.